0: That whomsoever believes in him may not perish, but have everlasting life. I did not grow up in a church where Johannine language rolled off the tongue with ease. And my first clear memory of this piece of scripture was when I was about 19 years old, sitting at a coffee shop across from a friend that I'd known since adolescence. She was a full year younger than me, at 18, and had recently become engaged to her boyfriend. As I sat across from her, caramel macchiato in hand, I tried to make sense of this mysterious person whose life trajectory and current priorities suddenly felt so different from mine. I blurted out something like, wow, you're getting married. That's a huge deal. That's like a really big decision. She agreed and said, yes, it is the second most important decision that you will make in your life. Puzzled, I asked, what's the most important? The most important decision, she said, is whether you choose to accept or reject Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Her tone had shifted, and staring at me with the utmost sincerity, she quoted John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. Her intention was clear. This conversation had suddenly become about me and this moment of encounter and the possibility of transformation before we had even ordered our second cups of coffee. Never mind that I had been sprinkled with water as a baby and baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and had been confirmed answering that very question affirmatively several years before. Never mind that we talked about Jesus a lot, actually. To her, the downtown Presbyterian church with the big red doors didn't really get it. It was full of people like me who still needed saving. The difficulty exploring this beautiful piece of scripture is that it has been reduced to kind of a bumper sticker theology in our day. It's been Tim Tebowed, as a friend put it last week. It's been weaponized. When my friend quoted it, she was quoting it at me, and her subtext was clear what are you going to do with this do you believe or not are you in or are you out it is time to make this decision once and for all this most important decision of your life and because this piece of scripture has often been delivered in that kind of wrapping It can be hard to imagine the Jesus in this encounter as anything but kind of demanding. It can be hard to imagine his words as invitational rather than manipulative. His give and take with Nicodemus as gentle or even laced with a little bit of humor rather than kind of harsh. To my friend, believing in Jesus had everything to do with what one did with her mind. And so this passage was reduced to intellectual assent. But to Jesus, believing was more than that. Because simply approving of something with one's mind is not, after all, all that demanding. When we encounter scripture, and perhaps the Gospel of John in particular, one of our duties is to take off those North American glasses and put on our ancient lenses instead in order to hear Christ's words as those first disciples and seekers would have. We live in a world that is relentlessly individualistic, and becoming more and more introspective. When we hear words like belief and love and hate, we tend to understand them as internal states and often states of the mind. But in ancient Mediterranean culture, words like those had more of a group orientation because all of life had more of a group orientation. Bruce Molina and Richard Rarbaugh wrote a social science commentary on the gospel according to John, and in it they explain that in the world Jesus lived and taught in, an important result of such group orientation was actually an anti-introspective way of being in the world persons had little concern for things psychological. It follows that in such cultural arrangements, words referring to internal states always connoted a corresponding external expression. For example, the verb to know always involved some experience of the object known, to covet always involved the attempt to take what one desired. So a better translation for us would be to steal. Our lectionary stops short of the end of the discourse in this passage, where Jesus says the light has come into the world, and people love darkness rather than light. And it's a shame, because It's where he makes the connection between believing or trusting in him, the light, and loving him. Melina and Rohrbaugh elaborate further on the communal and anti-introspective way of being when they say that loving in the ancient Near East is not so much an internal state of the mind, but it's best understood as group attachment or attachment to some person. Correspondingly, hate would mean disattachment or non-attachment or indifference. So to love the light meant to attach oneself to the light. Mind, body, soul, everything and to attach oneself to the enlightened group, the community of faith. It's not as poetic, but it can reorient the invitation that we are given in this passage. As the mother of a 15-month-old, this language of attachment has special resonance for me (laughs) at present when my baby was a mere few months old, dropping him off at daycare at our own EEC was a pretty smooth affair. Emotional for me in the beginning, but kind of a non-event for my kid, who spent most of his time sleeping anyways. But now, at 15 months old, the comings and the goings are a bit more dramatic. There are mornings that he clings to my legs and howls and presses his little face up on the window once I've peeled myself away and stepped out into the hallway to leave. I can see by some of your sympathetic looks that you have been here. (laughs) It is awful. But then there are the afternoons when the script is reversed and the second he sees me through that window, he drops whatever he's doing, and he comes bounding forward with his arms outstretched, laughing and babbling about everything that he did that day. I am reassured by caring teachers and uh, professionals of child development that my baby does just fine uh, once, I've, once I've left, and that the dramatic partings and reunifications in fact reveal a healthy attachment, which is the most basic work of the very young, forging and trusting in relationships with those most primary caregivers, from there, finding freedom to be themselves and to exercise courage in their world. Could it be that is what Jesus is inviting us into? that we cleave to him, trusting him with the same innocence and abandon that infants do their parents. Nicodemus isn't ready for that kind of attachment. We're told that he comes to Jesus by night, not wanting to be seen with him in the light of day. Perhaps he even tells himself that it doesn't really count at that hour when everything else is canceled and everyone is asleep. Nicodemus allows that Jesus must come from God because the things that he's able to do reveal as much. But he lingers there, even as God's very presence stands before him. To the response Jesus gives that he must be born again, or born anew, or from above. Nicodemus responds as a literalist might, but how can someone do that? Nicodemus is a familiar character. We know a lot of Nicos, and maybe we even recognize him in ourselves. Nicodemus wants to compartmentalize his faith. He wants to systematize mystery, making the nonsensical easy to digest. He finds Jesus kind of interesting, and he wants to follow him, so long as Jesus conforms to the patterns he already understands, and so long as he doesn't demand too much. One of my former professors, George Strout, talks about Nicodemus as a kind of ancestor to what we might call lukewarm Christianity. He reminds his readers that in 16th century, in the 16th century, John Calvin referred to those who sympathized with the movement for the reform of the church, but were reluctant to be publicly identified with it as Nicodemites. Worse, in the midst of national socialism, Nicodemus's heirs, the German Christians, sought to accommodate the gospel to racism and anti Semitism, the anti Semitism of Nazi ideology. In response, the confessing church in May 1934 declared As Jesus Christ is God's assurance of the forgiveness of all our sins, so in the same way and with the same seriousness, he is also God's mighty claim upon our whole life. The ghost of Nicodemus pops up whenever someone asks the question, is that really something we should be talking about in church? As if there's anything that isn't touched by God's sovereignty. As if there are parts of our lives, both individual and communal, that we should quarantine off and say this doesn't really concern God. Nicodemus will show up again in John's narrative with similar ambiguity. He is even present to help one of the disciples prepare Jesus' body for burial, but he shows up there without a confession of faith, and so we're left wondering. The question that still hangs in the air surrounding the memory of him, did he really come to believe, to attach, is the question that gets reflected back on us. It's a serious question, but it needn't be a scary one. It needn't be delivered in the way that it was to me once upon a time. The irony of this passage being turned so aggressively on our moment of decision, on what we do, is that birth isn't something we accomplish on our own, right? It's not something that we decide to do. If you stand back and think about it, the image is quite provocative, When you are born, it's because someone has birthed you. Someone has carried and labored and either pushed or allowed someone to pull you out into the light with no shortage of physical pain and emotional outpouring. As far as I've heard and seen, babies are not big fans of being born. It is safe and dark and comfortable and undemanding in the womb. They are usually indignant when they arrive. So when we talk about being born or being reborn, we are first and foremost talking about the one who gives birth. We're talking about the women who gave us life And we're talking about God, whose desire to birth us into new life is a labor of love. Only then are we talking about us and the invitation to surrender to that love, attaching ourselves to the one who knows us best and finding the freedom therein. Thanks be to God. Amen.